Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome back, everyone, to the 47th episode of the Take the Points podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined as always by Arjun Menon, coming off a divisional weekend that gave us a lot to talk about. Arjun, how are you doing? Uh, doing doing pretty well. Um, really enjoyed kind of the divisional state. I thought we got a lot of interesting matchups, uh, only like one real blowout, but a lot of fun games to watch and really, uh, you know, fun to watch and analyze. So I, I'm excited to be able to talk about it today. I know we have a lot to get through, but four games uh, and I'm sure we have a lot of uh, data points that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we watched the the games on, on Saturday together with our friend Dak Brown, who was on this show uh, earlier in the season and, and a couple of our other friends too at, at a bar, which, which was fun given, you know, how, how many fans there were of, of different teams or just people that place bets on these games that were <laughs> rooting for their team. So Jaguars chiefs specifically, you know, uh, the, the chiefs were nine and a half point favorites in that game and were up 10 uh, with a minute to go in the fourth quarter. And the Jaguars kicked the field goal to lose by seven points. And some of the people celebrating there like clearly had money on Jacksonville covering, which was nice to see. But what were some of your initial takeaways from the game in general? Yeah, I thought the Chiefs did a tremendous job really exploiting the Jags' weakness, which was their um, inside linebackers. It, it kind of sucks for Jacksonville, like their front office, and I guess their fans that, you know, the, the Trent Balky spends $45 million o- over three years on an inside linebacker, Foye Luakon. spends a first, trades up, I think, for a first-round pick in Devin Lloyd. Or he might have stayed put at the back of the, either way, you spent a first round pick on Devin Lloyd. You spent all that money in Foya Lucon. And Travis Kelsey still catches 14 passes against you. Now, obviously, it wasn't like a like a huge performance. 14 catches for 98 yards. It's only seven yards of reception, only seven first downs. But when you spend that much, that many resources on your linebacking room, like you're expecting them to take care of business in this matchup, or at least like slow them down. And allowing 14 catches is kind of like unacceptable. If I was, you know, on the Jags, like that's not what, you know, you you paid these linebackers for. They even paid someone like Rayshon, Drunken, Rayshon Jenkins, who's a safety, $8 million a year to be able to cover Kelsey in these moments. So, you know, I thought for the most part, Kelsey dominated. I thought the Chiefs manufactured targets for him in a in a pretty good way. My favorite stat was Kadarius Tony having 12 snaps at receiver on passing plays and getting targeted on six of them so Andy Reid you know again doing his best to put the ball in his uh, best playmaker's hands in the playoffs and when you know you do that good things will happen I thought for the most part the Chiefs were uh, pretty successful offensively 
And I think it spoke to the infrastructure that the Chiefs have in place where Chad Henney was able to come in and be a part of a 98-yard touchdown drive because you kind of found a run game with Isaiah Pacheco having a pretty good day on the ground in general and, and one of his better performances of the season. But then, like you mentioned, Travis Kelsey was just so good in this game and and Kadarius Tony did did well too. And the Jaguars were stuck in primarily single high coverages, playing cover one or cover three on about 70% of their snaps in this game. And we know that's usually not the formula that has worked against the Chiefs in the past. And the Chiefs did kind of eat it up, but they did so without many deep shots. They basically just were targeting the middle of the field uh, on, and especially Kelsey. And they only took five plays where they had over 15 air yards and they had a 0.0 EPA on those plays, but on their 25 passes where it didn't go more than 15 air yards, they had a 0.4 EPA per pass, which would have obviously led the league in efficiency this year. And Travis Kelsey ended up getting 7.6. EPA, Juju Smith-Schuster got 2.1, uh, Justin Watson got 1.6, and Kadarius Tony got 1.6 as well. So they were really spreading the ball around. It was a lot of short passes. Uh, Mahomes' average up the target was below seven, uh, so so pretty below average there. And like even when Mahomes came back from his injury, this kind of became the sprained ankle game because we saw how much that injury was hurting him, and he was still able to average a 0.28 EPA per play on the game and he only had eight plays on the, the sprained ankle in, in the second half, but 0.67 EPA per play in the second half. So as Sam Hoppin pointed out, he's still the best quarterback in the league, even when he's playing with a hurt ankle. Yeah, and I think talking, I think the big point you brought up there is only they only needed him for eight plays in that second half. And a big reason for that was Isaiah Pacheco, who had you know a great game running the ball. Um, in general, the Chiefs rushing attack on early downs averaged a 0.12 EPA per rush, uh, only a 36% success rate. So they weren't like super successful, but we saw Pacheco kind of break off those big runs, especially in the third and fourth quarter. And that's kind of the complimentary football Chiefs fans have been hoping for for years. Now, I would kind of, you know, advise them to not really give rushing touches to Jarek McKinnon, 11 carries, 25 yards. Um and he averaged a negative 0.2 EPA per rush while you know rush, running the ball. So I think they found a decent balance. I think they did obviously run the ball more than they normally would. You know, you, you don't normally see both of their running backs combining to get 23 carries when, when Mahomes is healthy, but that's just kind of how the they beat the Jags. And I think the Jags were allowing them to run all over them. Like you're not gonna allow Mahomes to pass all over you. And I thought the Jags thought they could stop the run. Which, given after given their performance against the Chargers, I wouldn't. You know, they're probably riding high on, on confidence. So I don't typically blame them for that. But I did think the Chiefs' run game was was a huge factor, and that kind of it, it's a good sign going forward if Pacheco can kind of be someone they can rely on. And that's obviously what you want out of like a seventh round flyer uh, late in the draft. Definitely agree, and that's that's what we say when running backs like. All of them are good in the NFL. There's some that are like really, really good running backs like the Nick Chubbs and the Aaron Jones. But when you can find your leading rusher in the seventh round while you spent a first round pick on Clyde Edwards-Alaire, uh, it, it, it's kind of funny to see how that turns out. And yeah, just, just on top of that, I think we saw just it was classic Chiefs football uh, and, you know, kind of until the injury there, especially on that first drive where it was good play calling as usual from Andy Reid and then insane playmaking from Mahomes and 
Kelsey catching basically everything that was thrown at him. And the Chiefs had five point or sorry, Mahomes specifically had five point five total EPA on the first drive. Uh, you know, you pointed out on Twitter that when he does the little hand motion uh, to, to kind of get the offense ready, you know, that's when he's locked in. And you could tell instantly from, from the Chiefs going to the other side in this game, the Jaguars did what they do every game where they started slow and it took Doug Peterson and, and Trevor Lawrence and the rest of the Jaguars offense some time to get going. Yeah, I like I just didn't understand the Jaguars game plan at all. Doug Peterson, he was so aggressive in that second half against the Chargers, dialing up these deep and intermediate shots. And it's not like the Chiefs have like that great of a defense. I know like they kind of like show up nearly average on a mo- on most metrics, but like this was a defense they could have taken advantage of. And the thing we talked about in our previous show last week was the Chiefs are so susceptible to passes over the middle and the Jags didn't exploit that at all. Five passes over the middle now they had a 0.3 epa per pass on passes over the middle on those three on those five passes on passes to the left average a negative 0.1 and on passes to the right average a negative 0.06 so like they leaned they didn't go they didn't try to you know lean into the chief's weaknesses and that kind of cost them per my count they had they had nine screen passes like like it's not like the Chiefs defense is like bad at stopping screen passes. The Jaguars defense is, but the Chiefs defense is like not bad at stopping screen passes because Willie Gay, Nick Bolton, they're both like very athletic linebackers. They can hit get past the line of scrimmage very easily. They can blow up those blocks. They're very good run defenders. Where the struggle in is coverage. And I thought when the Jags did throw over the middle, they did a good job of taking advantage of that, but they just didn't do that that often. And I thought Doug Peterson was too conservative for most of the game. I don't know if that Christian Kirk drop early on kind of scared him off. But it was kind of like a weird conservative game plan from a coach that, you know, I'm pretty sure you knew he was seven and a half point underdogs going into this game. He would have leaned into the variance or he would have been more aggressive as the as the big underdog on the road. Mm-hmm. Definitely agree. And Doug Peterson had a tremendous season as a play caller, especially second half of the season and second half of games when we would see his adjustments. But the middle of the field, the lack of the middle of the field passes, like you mentioned, was huge. When they threw their five passes over the middle of the field, there was a uh, average up the target of 10 yards and they got the 0.3 EPA per pass, like you mentioned. But there just wasn't enough of that in this game. And like the screens and, and kind of the shorter passes were kind of disappointing and they just didn't use Evan Ingram enough. I thought Evan Ingram could have been a matchup nightmare in this game for what the, the Chiefs kind of had to offer, but he wasn't utilized as, as much as you wanted to, and he could have really done a great job uh, like like he had been these these past couple of weeks. And then Christian Kirk as well as was getting targeted, but the production wasn't there. So the connection seemed a little bit off, but it does come back to the missed opportunities for the Jaguars. At the end of the day, the Christian Kirk drop was huge and could have really changed the game, especially at that time in the game. And then the Jamal Agnew fumble down 10, uh, where the Jaguars had some time left to get a stop and get the ball back. If they were able to convert in the red zone on that drive kind of cost them the game as well. So it was a combination of a couple things. And when you're playing a road playoff game with a coach in Doug Peterson that hasn't coached in that situation in a couple of years, and then obviously Trevor Lawrence's first playoff game. And, and this is a young team. Like I think, mm-hmm. I think the, those types of stuff happen in this game, but you should still be very excited as a Jaguars fan going forward because you have your quarterback for sure, which is the hardest thing to do. We know in football, you're going to throw Calvin Ridley into this offense next year. And I know it's a tough task to 
for him to return to peak Calvin Ridley form, given he hasn't played football in two years. But if he's able to, every receiver is able to slide down a spot and you're looking at a really good offense there. And you have some resources as well to to pour into your defense. So Jaguars fans should be excited because you have your coach and quarterback going forward. Yeah, and just playing in the AFC South, which might be the worst division in the in the entire NFL next year. It, it really should be six free wins for them. They might go against two rookie quarterbacks in Levis and um I don't I don't know whoever the Colts and Texans are what they're gonna do in the draft, but um and you know the tight ends are prime regression candidates. I mean, they were this year, and I think they'll they might even take a bigger step back next year. So Jaguars should be the favorites. I, I'm predicting a very good year. And obviously I think T Law is the truth. Um I, I just again I, I just wasn't that impressed with the game plan on the offensive side of the ball. And obviously, like it's tough to slow down Mahomes. And when he was doing that, the stuff he was doing on a gimpy ankle, um, you just gotta give props to him there. Um, but let's move on to Giants Eagles. Um, why don't you kind of kick us off with some of your thoughts from this game? The Eagles just had the crazy talent advantage at basically every position. So I listed it off just to make sure I wasn't going crazy here so here's all the positions where the eagles were more talented than the giants at least according to what i thought quarterback offensive line wide receiver room tight ends defensive line linebackers cornerbacks and safeties the only position where i think the giants are more talented than the eagles is running back and that's what we saw in this game the giants have a great coaching staff and that's why they're able to take advantage of some of the inefficiencies that we see from other coaching staffs, like when they're going up against the Vikings the week before and Ed Donatel was running a very vanilla defense where they knew where players were going to be and the Giants took advantage of that. The Eagles probably have the staff and with the analytics team that they have and what Sirianni and Steichen and Gannon do on both sides of the ball, where they just completely took advantage of the Giants and especially this very weak linebacker room. So the Eagles had a negative 0.6 pass rate over expected during the regular season against the Giants. It was negative 14% because they knew they could just target the linebackers. They were targeting Gerard Davis, who the Lions 31st ranked defense in the NFL decided that he wasn't worth keeping on the roster, even as depth. And Gerard Davis had to play the most snaps at linebacker of any Giants defender on Saturday. And so the Eagles ended up getting a 0.4 EPA per rush which would have been the most efficient passing offense in the league. Uh, and then 40% of their rushes went for first down. So it was just total domination on that end. So this is this is something I thought of like yesterday, and I was just curious about your take on it. So Joe, Joe Shane, who's the general manager of the Giants, right? He's coming from the Bills, who had Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds. This year, they were one of the best. Last year, they were one of the best linebacking duos in the league, right? Before the Bills, uh, Joe Shane was, I think, like – um part of the Panthers front office before Brandon Bean brought him over right that Panthers front office or linebacking room talking about Luke Keekley, you're talking about Shaq Thompson you're talking about Thomas Davis senior these are just some really freaking good linebackers right and instead he goes to New York and he puts out one of the worst linebacking rooms in the entire NFL like we're talking Jalen Smith and Gerard Davis are not good at playing linebacker at any facet of playing linebacker do you think you know, and as we as we've seen this past year, the Giants have like doubled their analytics staff. Do you think you know he's approaching building this defense from like a real like analytics type base where you don't value linebackers much or even at all? And given that they didn't have a top five guy, like one of the few that matter, do you think they didn't like care that much about linebacker? And this was like something we're going to see going forward. 
or do you just think this was like a rebuilding year, or like a, a weird year because they didn't have much space to make a move or and they didn't think any of their draft picks were ready? This is a great question. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. So I think it's a combination of both this year where they realized that they could punt on linebacker and like that was like the least important aspect of their defense. But they also cut James Bradbury because like they weren't cap compliant and, and he was their best corner just to get under the cap when they could have put void years in there and restructured some things to make sure he stayed on the team. So I think it was more of what you mentioned where it was just a weird year and they were put in such a hole because of some of Gettleman's moves. But going forward, I do think that they will approach this roster construction from a pretty analytical uh, perspective. They already have a lot of their defensive line in place with, with Dexter Lawrence and, and Kayvon Thibodeau uh, at the head there. And so I think they'll, they'll start to go get some secondary weapons to help out Adoree Jackson and Xavier McKinney. And then they can kind of fill in linebacker at the last spot because that's what the Eagles did. And mm-hmm. the Eagles defense dominated them in this game with a really, really great defensive line and then really good corners like James Bradbury, uh, speaking of him, that that were able to, to get some interceptions in this game. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts, though, are, are on, on their kind of plan. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with it. You have to say, um, I just think Shane knows what to prioritize and just, I don't think he really expected much out of this year. It's not like he made any big pushes even after the Giants started super hot. Like he was content rolling with Isaiah Hodgins, Richie James and Kenny Galladay and, and Darius Slayton into the playoffs when, when he knew he was going to make the playoffs, he could have go- gone out and try to get a, another street free agent or make a move at the deadline. I think he understood that, understood that they vastly outperformed expect- expectations. They were kind of a fluky team um, with some of their one-score wins, especially early in the season. So I don't fault him at all. Uh, I just thought that was a funny thing given you know how good the linebacker rooms have been for uh, Shane and his previous stops. But yeah, just going back to the game, um, as you talked about, like the Eagles really just did whatever the hell they wanted on offense, averaging a, a 0.4 EPA per rush, a 62% success rate on early downs, 0.11 EPA per rush, 54% success rate. So they really controlled the game start to finish. And I think it was good for them that they got the buy and they pretty much got a second buy here because by, by the second half, it's not like they were even trying to win the, like they weren't even trying to do anything on offense except run, run, run. And, you know, one of my favorite, we talked about this on our last matchup, but or on the previous show, but one of my favorite matchups of this game and probably of the season was Dexter Lawrence versus uh, Jason Kelsey or Isaac Siamalu or Landon Dickerson on 26 pass rush snaps. Lawrence had zero pressures. And this is the first game since week 13 of 2021 that Dexter Lawrence had zero pressure. So wow. just a tremendous job by the Eagles offensive line. Um, you know, this is the expectation for me for them going forward that they're just going to dominate whoever they go up against because they're just well coached. They're just a really good unit. And again, props to Howie Rosen for kind of putting this all together and and for Jeff Stoutland for uh, getting those five guys to go to his university. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, Howie Roseman has, is hosting an NFC championship game for the second time in five years with a different quarterback and a different head coach than the time that he did it five years ago. And he just so happens to have the number 10 pick in the draft, uh, I was I was looking at your offseason resources composite score, and the Eagles are in a fine position from both the draft perspective and the cap perspective. So it's not like the Eagles had to mortgage 
their future to get to the spot like the Rams did last year or or, or the Saints did uh, in previous years. Like the Eagles are still set up for future success and they're playing as two and a half point favorites in the NFC Championship game this year. So it's really good roster construction. And just like the way that this team is playing right now with like seeing all the way that all the pieces have come together. Like not only is, is Jalen Hurts generating a ton of surplus value and is still playing well, but what Steichen's able to do with uh, AJ Brown, who is getting shadowed more and more opening up things for Devonte Smith and Dallas Goddard. And then also the, the rushing that they have Boston Scott giants killer and, and Miles Sanders, and then mixing in gain while like, there's, there's just so many ways that they can beat you. And that starts from the top and the way that they put this offensive line into place to have the best offensive line in the league and kind of worked uh, inside out from there. Yeah, I, I remember kind of like reading, I think we talked about this, like even in person last year on the Titans, where the, the reason the Titans were like really efficient on offense, but just like it never seemed like they had talent, but they were always efficient was because you couldn't play single high on them because AJ Brown was uncoverable on one on one-on-one coverage. If you tried play, playing cover three or cover one, that's like a play action crosser for him or go route, right? And you just can't stop that. You can't play too high against them because Derek, you can't play live boxes against Derrick Henry or like at least Derrick Henry when he wasn't washed. And this year, it's even tougher because the Eagles have like a much better offensive line than the Titans. Jalen Hurts offers two times, three times the rushing ability that Ryan Tannehill has. You know, Miles Sanders is, I think, like a is a, is a good back. He's not an elite back, but I definitely think he's probably between like the tier uh, three and tier two of, of running backs. So it's like a very tough offense to guard. And AJ Brown is kind of like the architect of that because you can't play him in single coverage because he will beat you on go routes. He has the fifth most total EPA on go routes for any receiver on a singular route, you know, this entire season. So I'm, I'm very impressed again by how the Eagles kind of put this together. And this was a complete domination uh, start to finish from them and, you know, happy to see them go into the conference championship game. For sure. And this goes back to how important that number one seed is now that we have seven teams in the playoffs. Not only do you get a bye, you also get to play like a home field uh, playoff game for, you know, the entire playoffs, which was with the old number one seed. But you get the easiest team while the two seed has to grind, sometimes grind that first game because usually the seven seed is pretty good. And we saw this with going transitioning into into Bill's Bengals here, like the Bills had to grind that. Dolphins game even though they were pretty big favorites and they kind of just looked out of gas in this game against the Bengals here and came out flat at home uh you know in 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 a situation that they're supposed to be better in and and that the betting markets like them a lot and like that's the difference between the number one seed and the number two seed right now it's it's so stark and way more different than it was back when we had six playoff teams and it really hurt the bills in in this game here so I, I was kind of thinking about how I wanted to approach analyzing this game. I mean, this was another just team domination from start to finish. Um, but I, I think the only real place we can start is talking about the MVP of this game. And that's a big loop freaking Anna Rumo. I don't, I don't know what he does. I don't know what the coaching is going into the week, but Lou Anarumo probably has the, the best defensive schemes of any defensive coordinator I've seen against elite quarterbacks, whether it's in the regular season or the playoffs. Like Josh Allen was lost. He the offensive line was lost. They struggled in pass pro. Lou Anarumo was dialing up blitzes with Mike Hilton lining up 
five yards off off the line of scrimmage in coverage and then set, blitzing him. And Allen was holding onto the ball for three seconds and the blitz got there because Anaruma was playing zone or play like dropping Hendrickson into coverage. Like it was such a masterful game plan. My favorite stat from this game, and this was something um, I posted on Twitter. I think a lot of people liked it, but it was the, like how much they perfectly covered the Bills. So the Bengals defense perfectly covered the Bills offense on 66.67% <laughs> of their offensive plays or the bill the Bengals defensive plays for reference the this is the second highest perfectly covered play rate for any defense in any game this season wow. that's how and to do that as six point underdogs on the road in a divisional playoff game like that is might be the most impressive defensive performance of the season and a large chunk of that goes to Lou Anaruma because I mean he's done this he's done this in two straight years against elite quarterbacks and you know I I I don't know why he's not getting head coaching interviews. It might just be his age, but the guy has been putting on a masterclass for two years now, and he's he's been tremendous uh, for this entire season. I love everything you laid out here, and and to expand on that, Benjamin Solak had this this cool poll where he said, "All right, Luan Marumo has had eight games where he's faced an elite quarterback in the past two years. So that's been Patrick Mahomes three times." Josh Allen in, in this game that, that we're talking about now, Aaron Rodgers, Justin Herbert, and Lamar Jackson twice. And so he's he's had these eight games. These quarterbacks who, these are elite quarterbacks, they usually average a 0.15 EPA per drop back or around there, have had a negative 0.03 EPA per drop back against Luana Rumo's Bengals defenses. And they've had a, they've gotten pressured on 36% of plays, which would be one of the highest pressure rates in the league. And they've taken sacks on 7% of plays. So this is, it, he just, the pressure packages that he gets into are crazy. And you're right about him doing it against elite quarterbacks. And in the playoffs, when, when teams that, that the Bengals have faced in the playoffs the past two seasons, offenses go from averaging a 0.05 EPA per play to a negative 0.04 EPA per play. So that's that's the difference between going from like the 10th ranked offense to the 24th ranked offense or something around there. And they did this with so many different ways. Mike Hilton had a slot blitz on five plays, got pressure on four of them. The Bengals played at least every coverage from cover one to cover six, at least 14% of the time. So they were playing single high, two high, more defenders in the box, less defenders in the box. It was like really crazy. And at the end of the day, the Bengals defense, because of the resources they put into their secondary and the creative ways that they give, they get pressure are built to stop elite quarterbacks because that's what you need to stop elite quarterbacks. And the Bills defense we saw on the other side is not built to stop elite quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. They're built to take advantage of bad quarterbacks throughout the regular season and then kind of not do well when it comes to the playoffs. I I just the bill okay, look, I want I want us to take our victory lap of saying I we've been on this Bills defense has been overrated for weeks now. I think we've said it since the beginning of December. And you're right. Like they're just not built to stop elite offensives. They're not built to play in the snow. I, I don't like throwing around like the term weak, but like it just felt like they were just a weak team. Like they were getting bullied by Jackson Carmen and Hakeem Adenji. Like good defenses don't do that. And I know Von Miller's not there. I know Micah Hyde's not there, but like, come on, like you're, you have a lot of like highly paid guys on that defense, like Tredavious White, Jordan Poyer. Uh, you spent high picks on Rousseau and, ba Rousseau and Basham and like the, the bill, the Bengals, 
just dominated at the line of scrimmage and even like at the point of contact 106 of their 172 yards came after contact like that is extremely high um 100, 136 of the Bengals 242 receiving yards came via yak so bills couldn't wrap up anytime and there were plays where like burrow was taking a throw on third and eight six yards down the field so two yards short of the stick and chase was just putting his shoulder down and running through Tredavious white for an extra three yards hayden hurst caught a ball two yards past the line of scrimmage on third and ten and hurdled a guy to get a first down like the bill's defense just did not put up much of a fight they only by my calculations uh covered they only had a perfectly covered play rate of 23.6 percent for for reference the league average is 34 percent and so leslie frazier himself just didn't do a good job i you know we talked about louis in our room on master class this was a leslie leslie frazier disaster class <laughs> and there were just certain things watching the game that didn't make sense like the the bengals would go into trips and we saw leslie frazier play single high and rotate into Tampa two, which means the safety that's in the box is running all the way back out. And the linebacker, which was Tremaine Edmonds, who is lined up on the line of scrimmage, he's he's like backing, um, he's playing a hook zone. So he's just playing right in the middle of the field, but he's running from the line of scrimmage to the first down marker. While I think it was like Trenton Irwin is running a curl route where no one's at because the safety is running all the way deep and Tremaine Edmonds is running to a spot because they're playing Tampa two against trips. So it was, and like there was a third and four play in the red zone. They sent an all out blitz with Tredavious white playing five yards off coverage. If you're going to send a blitz in the red zone, you better damn well be pressing up on these damn receivers. So again, I like, I just didn't understand the game plan from Leslie Frazier. It just seems like they weren't prepared. It seemed like Zach Taylor had a lot of counters for what the bills were going to do. And, you know, this, this has kind of been the case for three years now where it just feels like he doesn't, do well against these elite offenses in the in the playoffs where even in the regular season it seems like he always does pretty well to your point about the the rotations that they were doing that were putting their players in bad position something that we talked to coach cody alexander about when he came on this show uh way back when it was starting was how how like the the advanced metrics show that when you rotate from too high to single high, it's better than when you rotate from single high to too high because a defender gets to run forward when you're rotating too high to single mm-hmm. high. And that's so much easier to do than having to run backward and and kind of take themselves out of maybe a position where they were succeeded. So like the Bills are supposed to kind of be this this franchise that understands this type of stuff. And Sean McDermott's still very, very good from a game management perspective. They still have a lot of talent on their roster and the betting market still looks very favorably of them. The even the look ahead lines to next year, they have the same odds as the Chiefs at the top spot right now to win the Super Bowl. So, like, there, there's still a lot of respect for the Bills, and you know, it's tough to go against the betting market with this type of stuff. But they do have a lot of work to do from a secondary receiving uh, aspect, and then as well as getting a little bit tougher on defense, like you alluded to, but. Your other point about Zach Taylor is really good. Like last year when I would watch Zach Taylor's offense or kind of look at the metrics that were happening, it did feel kind of a little bit predictable at times, but every offense kind of becomes that in the second half of the season, unless you're an elite play caller like an Andy Reid or a Kyle Shanahan. And what I thought Zach Taylor did a really good job of, of, was handing the reins to his players when they needed to. So giving more control to Burrow to be able to hit Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. He did a great job of that. And then his play designs were also good. He just wasn't good at the sequencing 
aspect of things. And this year, because they've had a better run game and they figured out the run game the second half of the season, those mm-hmm. things have kind of come together. And Zach Taylor has been coaching really well, right? You don't just make two AFC championships back to back on accident without really good coaching. And it seems like the culture and what play designs he's drawing up on offense and the way that he's able to get Chase and Hayden Hurst and T Higgins, the ball has been really impressive. I also think like it's not it's him, but also the coaches he hired, like Frank Pollock. I mean, like Jackson Carmen was starting left tackle and the the Bengals averaged a 0.07 EPA per rush, a 50% rushing success rate, 50.1 uh, EPA per rush on early downs. Like it's like the, the Bengals offensive line. I don't know how no one thought they were going to do well. Everyone seemed like, oh, this is going to be the worst thing in the history of the world. And they come out and dominate start to finish. Right. So that kind of speaks to how, you know, the just toughness of the Bengals. That was a, a really good performance by them. I would definitely, you know, when I was handicapping this game, and as we talked about it, I wasn't expecting the Bengals to win with a lot of runs. I thought it was going to be a lot of passing, but the, the run game definitely helped. The, the Bengals to control this game and as we saw in the second half I mean Joe Burrow threw for less than 60 yards in the second half and they just salted that game away by mixing four yard runs five yard runs and timely conversions on third down from you know Joe Burrow so I think of any performance um in the divisional round I thought this the Bengals had the most uh, complete team performance the Bills for the second time all season had a negative EPA per pass so um kind of speaks to how good you know Lou Anderson was there but would you would you agree with me that this was like probably the best team performance of any team I do think so and and when they put it all together especially in Buffalo against like who who they were playing against it in in the snow and everything I I think I I agree with that and I do want to bring up something that's like half half joking but like the Bills honestly might be better suited to play in a dome than mm-hmm. outdoors because they're going to be playing their most important games in, in this type of weather, um, even if you want like stats to back it up. So since 2020, when Josh Allen became this version of Josh Allen, his EPA per play drops 0.05 going from uh, when it's above freezing temperatures to below freezing temperatures. The average quarterback dropped 0.04 going from above freezing temperatures to below freezing. So he's on average for that. But the Bills use Josh Allen more than the average quarterback is used. So if you were to build a dome because you want to use Josh Allen more, maximize his his efficiency there, you you could do that. And I think it would I think it would help the defense as well. But obviously that's that's not feasible. And and they're gonna stick in their stadium because it was really honestly like gorgeous to look at the the teams playing in the snow uh with with the uniforms that they were wearing. And like I don't I don't see why anyone would ever want to give that up really. Yeah, no, I I totally I totally get that. Um, okay, let's move on to the final game: Cowboys versus 49ers. Um, I don't. Do you just want to start with the discourse that's been happening as the day we're recording, which is Tuesday, uh, which is talking about Rain Dakota Prescott, or should we get to him last? Uh, yeah, we can start with that because every other talk show opened up with the last play of the game, which we'll get to later. So. Yeah, why don't why don't we talk about Dak Prescott and to start off? And I don't think Dak played well, but I think my main takeaway from this game was how when things aren't going well on your offensive side of the ball, a yak-based offense is gonna be better than air-based offense. And the Cowboys rely on an, an air yard-based offense to generate their their yards. It's it's high air yards, low yak to CD Lamb over the middle of the field, high air yards, low yak low yak to Dalton Schultz 
And when you don't have an alien quarterback, like Dak is a very good quarterback, but he's not an alien quarterback, you it's harder to, to complete those because it's conditional on completing the pass, which has a lower probability. And when you have a yak-based offense like the 49ers do, you can throw these three, four-yard passes to Kittle and Debo Samuel that turn into 12 yards. So if you're going to get 12 yards either way, there's such a higher completion percentage that they they get on that. And that's why I think the Cowboys offense is going to need retooling. Like, yes, Dak didn't play particularly well in this game. The the two interceptions were bad and he was he was pretty inaccurate throughout the game, but he was just doing what was kind of given to him. And the 49ers were just over a lot of the things that kind of plagued the Cowboys and, and they were able to take advantage of all of that. And I think it's unfortunate that Dak has had to play the best defensive game planner or second best to Miko Ryan's as his final playoff game two seasons in a row, because it leaves a taste in everyone's mouth that Dak Prescott's not actually a great quarterback when he's just playing a really good defense. Yeah. It, the, it's tough to really like get like a fine line on the discourse because I think you'll have some people who think he's a, a Kirk and then some people who think he's like a tier two quarterback. I think like he's definitely in between there. I don't think you can really make an argument that he has like the tools or he's not, he's not explicitly great in any one thing that puts him in the tier two category, but he's definitely better than the Kirks and the Ryan Tannehill's of the world. So I, I don't think one performance against the league's best defense should should change people's minds that much. We're also one week like out from him having one of the best playoff performances of, of like yeah. the past five years. So you know, let's, I think we got to keep things like that um, consistent. But you know, it's it's stack, and he, he plays for America's team. So obviously, the reactions are going to be much bigger than than any other team and any other quarterback. But. I mean, we should also just talk about how good the 49ers defense was. So this was also a D'Amico Ryan's masterclass, uh, perfectly perfectly covered play rate of 51.3%, which was the second highest uh, of any game this of this week. And a lot of that was just taking away the middle of the field. So Dak had seven targets in the intermediate part of the, uh, or he had, sorry, he had seven targets. Um, no, he had, sorry, 12 targets that were short and center. And that one for 57 yards, so 4.8 yards per attempt. And you just talk about some of the things that like Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw do. I mean, Warner was carrying CD Lamb up the slide. Like that might have been one of the greatest coverage snaps of, of a linebacker yeah. this season. And this was something that we talked like extensively about on our previous show. Just like the the Cowboys are like two times better throwing the ball over the middle than they are towards the side, like any other side, right? And the 49ers are the best defense at taking away the middle. So what's gonna what's gonna um what's the word I'm looking like what's gonna fall? And it was the Cowboys offense. Now, is part of that not having Tony Pollard? I don't know how much that impacts the passing game because you know the 49ers like to play single high regardless. But not having that weapon, I think, definitely changed the game plan. And I, I don't think the 49ers had to respect the run as much without Pollard in the lineup. Yes, that's what it was, I think, was there's two guys on the Cowboys that can create a, a, a explosive passing plays for their offense. And that's Tony Pollard and CeeDee Lamb. And Lamb does it more than Pollard because he's a receiver. But Pollard... And they they started off the game with a ton of Pollard rushes because they knew that there there was a that there was their yeah sorry that that was going to be their path to winning in this game. And Pollard getting injured, I think, took a lot of juice out of the offense. And we saw that Zeke just wasn't able to do uh, as much as as what Pollard was was able to do in this game. And then on top of that, you know, when you have uh, your one like Hufanga is not even really a, a weak link. He's just 
not as good as all the other superstars on the 49ers defense. But when he has one of his best games of the season, that's how you also know that Dallas's offense was going to be in trouble in this game because like he was being shot out of a cannon multiple times into the backfield. He was playing pretty well in coverage. And then the, the other 49ers linebackers just dominate as well. And I, I want you to to bring up your, your point that you pointed out on Twitter about going from the, the Giants linebackers to the 49ers linebackers <laughs> or for the Eagles. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it on our spaces at some point, but I mean, the Eagles are going to going from playing Jerry Davis and Jalen Smith, again, probably the worst linebacking duo in all of football this year to Dre Greenlaw and Fred Warner. One's an all pro. Another one's a, like at least a top 10 guy at his position by most pundits. So that might be the biggest like swing in talent from one week to the next that any team has to game plan again. So I thought that's kind of funny. It's it's not gonna you're not gonna see the Eagles be able to get the same things that they were able to get against the uh, against the Giants again when they played the 49ers on Sunday. But it's it's yeah, Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw are amazing, and there's really no one like them in in the NFL this year. Yeah, and Next Gen Stats had a had a cool uh, stat today: receptions allowed over expected. So I guess using the model based on where the, the players are and in the air yards and stuff, they they come up with an expected um completion percentage and then and then kind of use that to model for defense. Fred Warner has negative 29.7 receptions over expected since 2018, including playoffs. Matt Milano is second with 24.4. Taron Johnson is third, 21.8. James Bradbury is fourth, 21.4. So like that's how good Fred Warner is, is he's basically what an average linebacker would do, he's allowing less one one or two less receptions a game, and that's huge for a, a defense because receptions can go for for 10, 15 yards, and this is not even he doesn't even get targeted that much because he's usually covering that. So this is on top of not being targeted that much, and and that that's why you know I think like Warner and and Greenlaw is so impressive, and that kind of leads us to like an interesting question where. If you have a defensive line as good as the 49ers, uh, does line does the linebacker core start to mean more or even surpass coverage from a positional importance standpoint? That's that's a good question. Um I would I think I would say no. I if you have a great defensive line, like I think they would be good enough to to kind of mask any linebacker deficiencies and that's kind of what the 49ers have like it's it's tough because like i think the niners have just built their entire game plan and just scheme around fred warner so it's not like you can just put someone in warner's position and you won't see like a substantial decrease like i think it would be pretty important like a pretty big drop off but i think coverage is still important like you're still relying on your cornerbacks to to win one-on-one matchups and especially in a single high scheme like the 49ers run you're going to need guys like charveris ward and diomodor lenore to be not perfect in coverage but good in coverage more snaps than not so it's it's an interesting question i'm curious to i'm curious to hear what your response is i agree with you i i still think coverage and and kind of like corners and, and safeties are are more important but linebackers do seem to be able to to kind of go to town here on on opposing offenses because of what that defensive line provides for them and uh yeah bosa bosa and, and armstead and, and the rest of that defensive line are, are just so so good and 
as as we get on to the last play here, is, or is there anything you want to talk about before we talk about the last play of the the game for the Cowboys? Um, I, I guess we, I mean, I just want to talk quickly about how good the, the 49ers offense was. Like I, I kind of watched that game back and, and you see the Niners only put up uh, 19 points and it's like, oh, like they didn't have like that great of an offense performance. Like Shanahan was deep in his bag. Like I know the, I don't think I was, I was that much of a fan with the run plays, but I think the Cowboys defense just kind of blew them up. The passing plays, there were guys like running open down the field that Brock Purdy just couldn't get the ball to because Micah Parsons had eight pressures and he was forcing Purdy off the spot. But it just like looking at the 49ers snap counts for some of their players. I mean, George Kittle had 10 snaps in the slot. Debo, 13 snaps in the slot. McCaffrey, eight snaps in the slot. Jawan Jennings, 10 snaps in the slot. Ayuk, 11 snaps. Out wide, Kittle, six. Samuel, eight. McCaffrey three, Jennings 10, Ayuk 23. Like there is so much mix and match in this 49ers offense. Like you'll have use check lineup in the backfield. You could have a backfield with Kittle and Debo Samuel with use check in the slot and McCaffrey out wide. Like there's so many permutations of how this offense can be run. And it's just so hard to game plan against them because they like the they don't the tendencies you would find in certain formations and sub packages, the sample size would just be so small that like if you were working for the team, like I don't even know if you'd want to present that because the sample size would be like five or six plays. And like unless they pass on every single one of those plays, like I don't know how confident you'd feel that you say, like, oh, like this happened when they when this package came out, right? So I think you know 49ers are just such a fun team and when you are able to pair Shanahan with that type of uncertainty as a defense that you don't know what's going to happen because you know just they're just so unpredictable I think that is why like people like Brock Purdy and and Jimmy Garoppolo always show up high in terms of efficiency metrics mm-hmm. I agree and yeah Purdy even like in this game I didn't think played bad he made some great throws over the middle of the field especially to close it out and we saw the 49ers kind of it was like a boa, boa constrictor game where they they weren't doing well on offense to start but they kind of just kept churning out the same plays and like you mentioned it's it's like a lot of the the tendency stuff that defenses can't take advantage of and we saw their run game take over in the fourth quarter and Purdy was kind of able to close it out but the crazy sequence at the end of the game where Eliza Mitchell runs out of bounds uh, to, mm-hmm. to stop the clock, which then gives Dallas the, the ball back. And then you have, so first of all, Elijah Mitchell is really lucky that most people are forgetting about him running out of bounds uh, to give Dallas even the opportunity to win. And then Dalton Schultz is really lucky that the last play of the game was so weird that no one's talking about how he didn't fight to get out of bounds going forward that let the clock running, that, that let the clock keep running, and then he didn't. Uh, drag his second foot down that would have given them like a 20 yard reception so it, it took us to the last play which is getting overblown but I still wanted to talk about it so they like they line up Zeke uh, just as the lone center which that probably would have been Pollard I would assume if, if Pollard was in there so Zeke was probably participating in a game that in a play that he didn't get much practice with and San Francisco called timeout and then they came out in the same formation after San Francisco had already prepared to defend this formation, which was a big mistake there, I think. And uh, to, to reference like an old game, so Michigan-Ohio State 2011, I believe, 2012, Brady Hoke, uh, Michigan's coach, did something very similar to this where it was a two-point conversion. Michigan was down one to close out the game. And they came out in a, a quad right diamond formation. Michigan did. 
and Ohio State called a timeout. And Michigan came out in the exact same formation after Ohio State had prepared to defend that that formation. And Ohio State blew up the play, and and the game was over. And that's the Cowboys should have either come out in a different formation or they should have done something different where mm-hmm. they should have thrown a screen pass to Turpin behind the blockers instead of having him run ahead of the blockers and trying to avoid the uh, illegal man downfield like they, they were trying to. And it was just a disaster, like from all aspects of it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why like teams come out when they know the defense has a timeout and like show their play. Like mm-hmm. at worst, like a literal worst case is you take a delay of game and like you'll say like, oh, we tried to fool him. They didn't bite. We'll take the five yards because in, in the long, in the grand scheme, eighty versus eighty five yards on one play isn't like that big of a difference, right? Or like even like I don't know what it was, sixty eight to seventy three. Like you, you should be able to bluff, and I just don't think the Cowboys really prepared for that. I don't really blame them like not a lot of coaches are preparing to have this one play in the playoffs like in you know leading up to the playoffs you're you're focusing on so many other things that the final play of the game it's kind of like just something you practice during training camp so um i don't fault mccarthy for that i don't fault him either for trying the wacky play that he pulled off obviously could have been cool if something happened but the fact that number one zika blew up as soon as he snapped the ball and then uh i Turpin got blown up as soon as he caught the ball. So just a, just a rough kind of execution on that part, um, which, you know, I think a lot of people were like, oh, this could be interesting. And then it just all came crashing down. When when that type of stuff works, it's praised like the Lions running a hook and ladder uh, on, <laughs> on Sunday night against the Packers. But when it doesn't work, it's it's scrutinized. And uh, that's that's kind of the, the, the results based world that we lived in. But this was a lot of fun. Uh, glad glad we got to do this together, review all these games as always. So uh, we were planning on doing a, a Twitter space on Friday. Uh, Friday, usually Eastern time around 5, 6 p.m. Was, is when we've done them in the past. I'll, I'll schedule one and, and tweet it out. Uh, so so be on the lookout for that. So yeah, come come join those. Um, those. Those are always a lot of fun. And we've had great participants and and talking to us about the games and we're going to be previewing the conference championship games and and those will be a good time and and maybe talk over some bets and everything too so so be sure to to hang out with us then yeah yeah really excited for that Uh, it should be a lot of in-depth conversations only two games so not a lot of jumping around we'll we'll probably be be really in-depth hopefully we get some of our old guests on and some of our new guests that anyone that listens want that wants to join you know obviously obviously we would love for you guys to be able to come on and speak but um yeah that's gonna wrap it up for us today again be on the lookout for tage's reminder about the twitter spaces on twitter but until next time i'll take the points